Support for Criminal comes from 1Password. If you're someone who's ever reused an old password, or you just hate creating and keeping track of new ones, then it might be time to try a password manager. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. All you have to do is remember one strong account password that protects everything else. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial for you and your family at onepassword.com criminal. That's the number one, password.com criminal for two free weeks. onepassword.com criminal. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode contains descriptions of crime scenes and may not be suitable for everyone. Please use discretion. I have this disease to please, as Oprah would say, and I, I have the need to sort of help people through their issues or help people with their problems. And so with the funeral home, I was really, really in my element. I could just sort of help people through, talk them down, make them feel more at ease after what they've just been through. In 1987, Sandra Pankhurst was working at W.D. Rose and Son Funeral Home in Melbourne, Australia, where she says she pretty much did everything. She prepared bodies for viewing, helped families plan all the details of the funeral, and then oversaw the ceremony itself. She says it was the perfect job for her because she isn't afraid of death or dead bodies, and she loved the work. It was at the funeral home that she met the man she'd later marry. The joke of it is, and as serious as it is, people used to say to me, how did you meet your husband? I go, buried his wife. You know, it was a joke, but it was sort of serious in the same token. After they'd been dating for a while, Sandra sat him down and said she had something to tell him. And um, he said to me, well, come on, tell me what's going on, tell me what's going on. And I said, well, George, I said, look, the way you see me is not always the way I've been. Um, He said, well, what is it? I said, well, I don't quite know how to explain it to you. I said, but... I had to be surgically enhanced to become the person that you see me as being. And with that, it just went deadly quiet. And he said to me, well, I met Sandra. I fell in love with Sandra and I'm going to marry Sandra. Sandra says being trans in Australia in the 1970s and 80s wasn't easy. She says she had trouble finding work where she felt comfortable. People didn't always treat her well or take her seriously. She thinks that in a way, that turned her into an especially hard worker. Everything I do, I do 150%. Because I was so busy hiding my identity and just concentrating on work that that's how I lived. 
She worked in a lab. She worked as a taxi dispatcher. She worked in the sex trade. She was in her 30s when she was hired by W.D. Rosenson Funeral Home, and she says it was the first time she felt like she could be herself and be not only accepted by her colleagues, but given more and more responsibility. She was one of the first women in Australia to become a funeral director. Being that close to death constantly, Sandra started to notice something. Families would say to her that they didn't know if they could handle going back to the place where their loved one had died. After a crime occurs or when someone dies, the police aren't responsible for cleaning up. That's not their job. The coroner takes the body, the police conduct their investigation, and then everyone leaves. But the blood and the rubber gloves and the uneaten food in the refrigerator is all left behind. Sandra didn't like thinking about that. She didn't think anyone should have to walk back into that. So she decided to clean it up. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. I thought, I'll go, I'll try this niche market and see how I go. She says she started by buying a van. I'm just confused. I mean, all you have to do is get a van and some cleaning materials, and then you, in the beginning you can just start? Well, it was, it was like that because it was a niche industry. No one was really doing it here in Australia. She established herself as a trauma cleaner, sometimes called an aftermath technician. Here in the United States, they're often called crime scene cleaners. For the last 26 years, Sandra has owned and operated her own trauma cleaning business. On her business card, it says, excellence is no accident. We do deceased estates. We do pet and hoarder cleanups. We do squalor and trashed houses. We pair homes for the home help for agencies to attend. We do odour control, homicide, suicide, unattended death scenes, mould, flood, fire remediation, meth lab cleaning, bio-cleans for the cells and the vehicles for the police, and industrial accidents. So that's a pretty wide range of things that we do. The trauma cleaning industry really took off in the 90s when people began to be worried about the transmission of HIV. Before that, family and friends would be the ones who would take care of the aftermath of a crime or a death. Now these types of cleanings are often covered by insurance and victim funds. Sandra says she's never said no to a job. So, you know, you see some pretty gruesome things and some you think, oh, this is not so bad, you know, like the police would go, oh, this is one of the worst ones we've seen. And when we get there, we think, God, you should get out more often. This is easy, (laughs) you know. So you get up to a crime scene and, and everyone, all the police are outside and they're saying, this is bad, I, we've never seen anything like this. And, and you say, don't worry, boys, we've got it covered. Yeah. We, we, we make them feel calm and comfortable and everything as well. And we talk to the family and say, look, we're here to, to restore the house to its former glory for you. Um, it's not just a cleaning job, it's looking after people's mental health and stability as well, I believe. Because we're not just cleaners. 
She says she could get a call any time, at three in the morning, while she's working on another job, while she's eating dinner. She has two hours to get to the scene. This morning I had a call at 3.30 this morning for her to wake a team up, get them out, get a job done. We're not allowed to discuss the jobs in particular that we do because part of our uh, privacy concerns. Um, but we had a team out at 3.30 this morning. So you can see I haven't had a lot of sleep and then up at 6.15 this morning to get ready and look like um, a normal person. Her first case came to her from former colleagues at the funeral home. A man with a hoarding disorder had passed away in his rental property. The cleanup took 72 hours. It was a rat-infested, filthy den of iniquity that I'd never seen the likes of because I used to have a nickname as a sparkle because my house is always tip-top shape. And to walk into this place here was like, oh, my God, I can't believe people could live like this rats and mice running everywhere. You felt like you had to be, you know, a field officer to deal with the animals that were there. It was just really, really spooky. But in the end, we had to do, I think, the fifth layer of flooring to come off in the kitchen because it was so contaminated. And um, with that, we were slicing the last bit of vinyl, pouring boiling water over to break the glue down, and then putting spades under it to sort of lift it up. But not only was it glued down, it was riveted down. And so every time we'd hit a rivet, it would ricochet on our hands, and our hands ended up looking like the size of watermelons. And we were sort of going, oh my God, we're in so much pain. And like, we'd finished the job, and I was really depressed, and I thought, I don't think I can do this. I really don't think I can do this. But then you get over a quick smart and then you move on. She says, people think you need a bucket of water and a cloth to do this job. But we need crowbars, rakes, and a sledgehammer. Thanks to 1Password for their support. It can be annoying to create so many new, unique passwords with arbitrary numbers, symbols, and letters every time we need one. And then once we've created one that works, we have to try to keep track of it and not reuse it anywhere else. And not choose anything that's easy to guess or remember. 1Password can take care of all of that for you. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. It uses industry-leading security to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. With 1Password, you just need to remember one strong account password that protects everything else. It's a great way to keep things organized and private, so you'll no longer need to keep tabs on a bunch of long, convoluted passwords or reuse the same one ever again. Join the millions of users and over 100,000 businesses who trust 1Password's award-winning password manager. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial for you and your family at onepassword.com slash criminal. That's the number one, password.com slash criminal for two free weeks. Onepassword.com slash criminal. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Sandra Pankhurst now operates her trauma cleaning business with 24 employees and nine vans. She says she gets calls every single day. And that when it comes to hiring new people, she says she likes to hire people like her, who come from, as she puts it, the school of hard knocks. When she meets with someone for an interview, she shows them photographs of the kinds of scenes they might encounter, and she watches their face to see how they react to the photos. She's looking for empathy. She says it takes a special kind of person to handle blood and to do it with empathy. The next step is to shadow her on a job, and she says it doesn't take long at all to determine whether someone is cut out for this type of work. If they're not, no trouble. She says she would never tell someone to, quote, take a teaspoon of concrete and toughen up. She knows it's not for everyone. When she does hire someone, she tells them to prepare to work harder than they've ever worked in their lives. She tells them they can cancel their gym membership. They won't need it. Each employee goes through a four-day training course. The first three days, they study theory and equipment and how certain solvents interact with body fluids. On the fourth day, they practice. Sandra gets blood from a slaughterhouse and pours it over furniture and carpets. When they go into crime scenes, she says they take a lot of photographs of how it looked before and after, and that they have a system in which each person's work is double-checked by someone else. Her greatest fear is missing something and having a family member see something that might scare or upset them. So, let's say you get a call that you're going to a crime scene. Tell me the steps that you go through after you get that call. Right, so what I do then is I bring the staff members involved to go that are going out on the job. And like and it used to be always me until um, the last couple of years. And um, we'd go there and I'd say, now this is what we're going to be confronted with. If I was on the tools then, I would go in, survey the house, see what it is, come out, explain to the staff, this is what you're going to be confronted with. Are you okay with this? And they go, yep, 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 we're fine. We've had the odd occasion where we've had a staff member that's just broken down and they can't do it. Uh, They might have been a fairly newbie person. And um, we sort of, okay, that's all right. It's not for everybody. So you just go and wait out in the car and we'll get this job done here. So it's, we go through the scenario of what's in the house, what to expect, what, how things have happened. The police will probably still be there. Um, the coroner's been, the body's gone. Forensics have been, they've taken all the, the testing and uh, fingerprint dusting and everything that they want to do. And then we have to restore the house back to somewhat its former glory which sometimes is quite challenging because if we have to remove carpet, uh, we then have to get permission to do that. We can't just pull the property apart without um, giving them 
the, the Department of Justice or whoever's employing us full recognition of everything that's going to happen. But in the same token, we are not to leave the scene if there's any bacteria or pathogens still in the property. And then afterwards, when we've done the job, we'll all gather outside as we're cleaning down the equipment and putting our, taking our suits and gloves and masks and all this sort of stuff off, that we would have a chat and have a, 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 a talk around. Quite often we'd go and stop off at a hotel or something like that and we'd have a drink or a cup of tea or, or something like that and, and just chew the fat and sort of have a, a general conversation. Now, how did you find that? How did you, how did you feel about that? Because sometimes you'd find things that would be quite confronting, like a, a gentleman one stage blew his head off and but he still managed to live so he tried it again so there was half of the roof of his mouth was on one side of the room his eyelashes were on the other side of the room brain matter was on another part of the room so and this was quite a large room and then he ended up doing it again and yet still lived what is it like to see someone's brains on the wall um, look, it's just another job. I know that sounds cruel, but it would be a different story if you knew the person. And if you knew the person, you wouldn't be allowed. I wouldn't let you do the job. What do you wear into the crime scene? Um, well, we're, we've got like the big white suits. We've got foot coverings on our feet. We have um, hair nets on, we have goggles on, a mask on, and we have, we're double gloved. Um, that's how we would go into a scene. So we look like something out of the aliens. What do you do about the smell? Oh, the smell's nothing. Once you get rid of the sauce and the chemicals and things that we leave, the house smells the fresh as a daisy by the time we've gone. That's not an issue. And, like, if it's been there for some time and it's a decomposition, yes, we either fog master or we ozone or, or we put on these um, amazing machines that might have to run for a couple of days and they filter all the air. And so it can eliminate a lot of that. But if it's been a decomp, the body, the gases and everything that have been released from the body go all over the wall, so the walls all have to be washed down. The main problem then is the fabrics that absorb the odour, and that's when we'd use the, the machines to dispose of the um, smell. What's the worst smell? Death. Long-term death, where they've been there for quite some time and no one's known about them being there. That's a smell you'll never, ever, ever forget. When she gets a call, she's not only told what happened, but she's also told who's at the scene. Sometimes there could be a family there that are hell-bent on wanting to go into the house, but we have to talk them down and make them feel like, you know, this is not how your parents... I say to them, do you love your parents? I go, yep. I say, do your parents love you? Yep. Do, is this the last memory that you, you, you think your parents want of you? And, oh, no, 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 but we just need to see. I said, no, you just need to see, but that's not really 
what you will want to live with because this is the last memory you're ever going to have. Let us just cover the area over and show you roughly where it happened and we'll get, say, I'd get permission to get some linen out of the linen press and we'd cover the area over and show them roughly where it happened and they're usually quite satisfied with that. But sometimes that could take an hour or two hours to talk the family down. Sandra says this is the part of her work she cares about most, protecting the people who are left behind. It's our job to sort of make sure that their mental health is looked after as well. Sandra told us that if someone dies in a particular part of a room, she won't just cut the carpet out in that spot. She always gets permission to take the carpet out of the whole room so that when she's done and the family returns to the house, they never know exactly where the body was found. Sometimes she sets things aside that the families may want, things that may mean something, things with handwriting, pictures, birthday cards. What's the most important thing that you've learned from this work? Don't judge anybody. You never know when it's what's going to happen to you next. Just, you know, just show some compassion and care because, as I say, by the grace of God, it could be you tomorrow. She's 65 now and has no plans to retire. She says she's had a long, sometimes difficult life, and she's happy to have found work that makes her feel like she's contributing and, as she puts it, looking after people correctly. Created by Lauren Spore and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Susanna Robertson is our assistant producer. Audio mix by Rob Byers. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Radiotopia. 